0: Amen. All right. Welcome, everybody. We're glad to have you here at North. Like I said earlier, joining live stream or joining in person, we are glad to have you guys. Looks great. And so... uh want to remind you if you came in today as you came in hopefully you received a connect card as i tell you every week please take an opportunity to look at that fill that out we would love to have an opportunity to minister to you if it's your first time with us um that is our lifeline to you okay and so you can come and go and hopefully your your hand is shaking and but in order to, to, to be followed up on, we, we want to be able to shoot you a text message, uh, get your feedback and any questions you might have about our church. We just want to tell you how much we enjoyed having you. So please uh, take opportunity to fill out that connect card as well. Check it out. Because, uh, if you were to make a decision today, uh, there's a way that you can mark there, um, as well. And so if you're listening online, the way that looks for you is we have a connect card online for you. So if you will text the phrase North connect to 31996. Yes. 31996, uh, then you'll be connected to our connect card and you can fill out everything just as I explained it here and it can be submitted electronically. If you got your Bibles, turn to Haggai chapter 1. Haggai chapter 1. We are in the middle of our series, Sign Me Up, uh, where we are, we are investing time into the leadership capital of Lindsay Lane North. Uh, we are encouraging, we are inspiring, we're, we're giving in, in this seven week series, the first four weeks, uh, which this is the second of the four weeks, we are talking about the priorities and the principles of leading or serving in a church. Now immediately, you may have the question, well Alan, serving and leading are not the same thing. Uh, they, but I am using them interchangeably, and here's why. I want you to think about the people in your life that have the most influence in your life. I want you to think about those that are the top influencers for you as a, as a person, as an individual, as a family. I want you to think about who has that, the most influ, influence in your life. And then I want to ask you this question. What has that person ever done To serve you or to help you. See, what we typically find out is as people serve and as people invest in us, they begin to gain influence in our lives. And so look at how Jesus handled the leadership that he was training. The 12 disciples, what did he tell them? The greatest among you will be the servant. Right? Jesus, who is the leader of all of us in this room, performed the greatest act of service that we could ever fathom in dying on a cross for my sin and for your sin. And so, as we look at leadership, yes, there's it seems to be a paradox when we look at it with secular eyes and through a secular lens. There's a paradox between serving and leading because the two really don't mix. In fact, they're opposite ends of the spectrum as we think about it secularly, but when we think about it spiritually, we see that the two are very, very much effect, uh, much connected. And so, last week, we talked about what pri- what's priority takes precedence. Remember, Haggai is in a unique time and period in Israel's history. Israel has been in exile for 70 years, and they have just returned back to the land of promise, but it wasn't like they thought it was going to be. Right, The grass is always greener on the other side. They thought everything was going to be rainbows, gumdrops, and butterflies, and it wasn't. It was terrible. Uh, the land was unkept. It was difficult to cultivate. The people there were even more difficult to deal with. Uh, and the weather was terrible. There was nothing going right, so they all decided to do what they'd done in Babylon, and they just made themselves comfortable. They started building their houses. And listen what Haggai 4 and 5 tells us. We, we, we preached on this. We talked about this last week. Haggai comes with the message of the Lord. And this is what it says. Is it, is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? This house being the house of the Lord, right? Being the temple, literally where God's presence would dwell. Again, that's Old Testament, but not New Testament, but... Is it, does you do well to do that? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. A phrase that's mentioned five times in the book of Haggai. In two chapters, it's mentioned five times. Consider your ways. Give thought to the things that you are doing. What is he calling us to? To remember what is, what should take precedent in our life. Remember your priorities. You got here and you wanted to build God's house because it was a symbol of God's presence amongst your people. It's time to make that a priority again. And so we left with this message, but we have no idea until today how the leaders responded. And so number one, let's look at the leader's response. The leaders respond. Haggai chapter 1 verse 12. Then Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel and Joshua the son of Jehozadak, the high priest with all the remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent them. As had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Now, Israel didn't have a very good track record to how it used to handle the prophets that God appointed to come and deliver them a message. When they were doing wrong, God raised up a prophet. And the prophet would speak and listen. There were some awful things that happened to prophets that were communicating God's word to his people. Men, they were persecuted, they were killed, uh, they were shunned and exiled. All of these things happened to God's prophets. Israel does not have a very good track record up until this point of responding well to the word of God through the prophets. But listen to what they did. Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. About the governor and the priest and the people, John Phillips in his commentary said, Perhaps there has never been a more heartfelt response to a message than this. That as, as soon as they heard that they were doing wrong, they responded and they repented and they got back on the right track. This is true repentance that we see here. But look where it." began our point is that the leaders respond before the remnant of the people it says Zerubbabel and Joshua it addresses the leaders first who was Jerubba? Zerubbabel Zerubbabel was the uh, the civil leader he was the governor he was appointed there by Persia and he was the civil leader for the region then Joshua, who was he? He was the high priest. He was the spiritual leader of the people. And so the spiritual leader and the civic leader got together and they responded in obedience to the Lord. And look what happened. All of the people fell in line. All of the people responded in the same way to the leadership as the leadership did before them, they heard the Word, and not only did they hear and obey the word, but they also recognized, as did many of the Israelites before them did not do, they recognized that this message was sent by God. What did it say there? as the Lord their God had sent him, that Haggai was sent by God to deliver. This message, not just the the prophet's message, but who the prophet was and that he was sent by God to do it. There has never been a move of God that has not had a leader. There's never been. Now, there have been multiple leaders over time, but every move of God has had a leader. Leaders set the tone by which other people come to follow. When you look back at the first Great Awakening, the second great awakening, we we know names of of of, of very prominent pastors and leaders uh that surrender the world we talked about in our men's group just last week uh in our men's group, which by the way, if you're not plugged into the men's group and the women's group, we meet on alternating nights uh in different places. We can get you that information. We want you there. Uh but as we were going through that and and and, and talking about that. Right, They were key figureheads. Why? They were leaders. They were, they were people that God was directing, and because of their obedience, once they obeyed the Lord, it became easier for others to follow. Leaders set the tone by which others are rallied to follow. And so what I have here is a pitch pipe. Um, Will informed me that he was too sophisticated for a pitch pipe. All he needs is a tuning fork in the key of A, apparently, and he can take it from there. Um, so I had to get this from my granddad, uh, but this is a pitch pipe. Now, if you've been at churches, especially churches without musical accompaniment, uh, this is something they use heavily. And what it does, right, is you just you figure out what key you're going to sing in, and then you... Right, now, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to sing. I'm not going to subject you to that. Probably went a little high if I was going to. Um, but they it sets the tone, right? You see now why we have music, musical instruments. Um, Will can tell you, man. I'm, I'm sitting here in the front row. He says he hears me every Sunday. God love him. All right. But but this is what they do. They they blow the pitch pipe, right? And what does it do? It sets the tone for the entire. Sets the key for the entire song, right? So when you hear. In the key of A, you sing. In, I see here's some people humming right now. That's cool. That's good. If you're humming at home, great. Just go ahead and sing. Just go ahead and do it. All right? But here's the deal. That, that's how a pitch pipe works. And so it gets everybody on the same page. I believe this to be a very good representation of what a leader is called by God to do. And I wrote it down because I don't think I can say it any better. Unless I just read it right off my notes. Listen, when I, listen, listen to my thought here. When leaders feel the wind of the Holy Spirit blowing, when they feel the direction of the Holy Spirit moving in their life, when they see, when they're sensitive, right, in a place spiritually where they're sensitive enough to sense what God is doing in a community or in a group of people or in their family or in their own lives, For Zerubbabel and for Joshua, it would be hearing the words of the Lord. They place themselves in the center of that current. That's what a leader does. He senses and and, and senses where the Holy Spirit of God is leading. They feel the wind of the Spirit. They feel led in a direction. And they put themselves in the center of that current. And through the uniqueness of their talents and abilities. Listen, every one of these keys... They're all different. Every one of them are unique. Every leader is unique. Through their own uniqueness and their own talents of their calling, they provide the church with the wind of the Spirit, of the Holy Spirit of God moving in their life. They provide a common key. They provide a common key or a standard by which their heavenly melody can flow. They provide a standard for the church. And maybe this is church universally, big C. Maybe this is a local body of believers or maybe this is your church gathered in your living room in the form of your, your wife and your children. But they set a tone. And then the church flows through that melody, under the inspiration of God and His Holy Spirit. This is this is the idea of leadership. There's nothing special or unique about these keys. They're formed to do that purpose. In the same way, God has formed every one of us as His hands, as His feet, as His uh, heart, as His lungs... He has formed us all in His body to provide a melody, to provide a tone for the church. And this is the idea of leadership. Again, it's it's God's breath and God's direction, but we lead, placing ourselves in the center of that flow. The only trait that every leader has in common is initiative. initiative. Larry Osborne said in in his book, The most striking thing about highly effective leaders is how little they have in common. This is true. But one trait stands out. The willingness to risk. Every leader is different. Every single one of them. They have their own set of strengths and weaknesses. I've got church planner buddies of mine that, man, they could not be more different than I am. And as we were, Becca and I were going through the training that the Alabama State Board of Missions put us through, we noticed that every single one of those couples were different They were unique, man. Some of them could rattle off stats like it was like they were robots, man. They had all this information, all of these statistics, and man, they were just going. And I was like super impressed and really, really insecure at that point, right? They just rattled them off. And it's like, man, that's unbelievable. Then there were some that were more like me, right? A lot of sound and fury and really amounting to not much, right? Like there was. There was some of those and, and there were others that were discipleship driven and they had a discipleship strategy of moving people from one point to another. And, and listen, God's called us all to, to lead in, in those certain capacities. But here's the thing, there's uniqueness in every leader. What is, so that they're not all the same, but what is the same is that they see the moving of God and they take the initiative to put themselves in a place to be used by Him. You can sit here. We'll try to make it hard on you. But you can sit here in a chair for the rest of your life in our church and just attend. You can do that. But God has called you to more. Every leader is different, but they all take the initiative. While most are frozen by the risk, I mean, think about it. What would have happened if the people would have said, nah, we're going to build our house. I'm still working on my second garage, uh, on my workshop, on my man cave, on my she shed. I'm still working on those things. Um, let me get back to you, and then we'll work on the house of the Lord. Man, there could have been a revolt, right? No, we're going to do this. No, we're not. Right there could have been this revolt. Then these leaders are, are ostracized. They're out on an island by themselves. The Persian government that had put them in power is way over here. Right, so they're not going to help. Right, and so they could have been. They, there was a significant risk to what they were calling the leaders to do. Haggai to to actually make this message known was taking a risk. There was track record of them not responding well. There's risk. But while most are frozen by the risk, leaders are fueled by the opportunity. Leaders are fueled by this phrase. This is how it is right now. But what if? What if? They take initiative. And so we see that the leaders respond. Secondly, we see that the Lord resides Look at verse 13. Then Haggai and the messenger of the Lord spoke to the, the messenger of the Lord spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you declares the Lord. The leader responds. The people get behind the leader, and then Haggai mentions the most encouraging thing that could ever be uttered to the people at this time. Remember, what was it that made Israel significant? It was not that they had great military power. It wasn't that they particularly had a lot of wealth. In fact, God said, "Well, I've chosen you because you are pretty insignificant. That's what he said. What made them significant was the fact that God's presence was with them. The same God that was with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The same God that was with David as he slew uh, slew the giant. The same God that was with them in the Holy of Holies as they... First with the tabernacle, right? They made the Ark of the Covenant and you've got the cherubims there that are representative of of God and His power and His provision and His law in their life, right? And, and that God's presence, the Shekinah glory of God literally rested between the cherubims. It was literally a physical representation of God's presence with the people. They had that at one time. But during exile, Ezekiel tells us, I believe it's Ezekiel 10, Ezekiel watched the Shekinah glory of God leave Jerusalem. He left them. The presence left them. And so even though they didn't have a temple, even though it wasn't completed yet, because they responded in obedience, Haggai being the mouthpiece of God, was able to say, hey boys, we don't have a temple right now, but God is with us. This is what everyone would have wanted to hear. God is... With us, I'm sure they were asking questions like, "Well, how can that be? There's not a there's not a temple. There's not a there's not two cherubims. There's not an ark of the covenant. There's not a mercy seat. How how could there be a presence of God here? There, there's there's no physical representation. God was moving the people. In fact, the shekinah glory never returned, even after the temple came back. There was no shekinah glory that ever returned. But God was with His people. Our obedience is what brings, is what ushers God's uh, presence and His power in our life. It's not. What we do or what we accomplish, it's who we are. It's when we respond in obedience to him. And so he says, I am with you. I want you to know something in this room, in your homes. God's presence uniquely qualifies one to lead. Now you may be thinking like I'm thinking... I don't have all the qualifications of a good leader. I don't have it. I'm not a good leader. I don't have charisma. I don't have this. I don't have that. I don't have a great following of people. And you, if you're not careful, you will use all of these excuses to completely, uh, discredit anything that God could ever do in your life. Right? And so, and so we do that. Right? But if weakness had any bearing on God's calling in our life, then the entire Old Testament would have just paused. As soon as God started using people like David and people like Gideon and people that had all of these Barak and all of these different people that had all of these limitations. But it was God's presence with them that uniquely qualified them to lead. Because you see, the greatest leaders are still followers. They're still followers. How did Jesus train up his twelve? These twelve men that I think it's hilarious as the Pharisees, as the people that had spent their whole life studying the Bible. I mean, they knew a lot of Bible verses would look at them. In fact, many of them not only knew the Bible verses, but had memorized the commentary that went along with the Bible verses. Can you imagine getting done memorizing the Old Testament and going, all right, what's next? And then someone just slamming a giant uh, uh, rabbinical document. And like, all right, time to memorize this. Genesis chapter 1, right? Can you, They had memorized even these. These were learned men. These were men that had qualification. And you know what they said about the Disciples guys are uneducated they dumb. there's nothing about them that is special they recognized them as uneducated men but they also recognized that they had been with Jesus It was the relationship they had with Christ. It was the tone that He set as their leader in their life that made a transformative difference in the world that they lived in so that over 2,000 years later, we are the product of what those leaders did. Uneducated men, but they've been with Jesus. This is what we see. And this is what God had called his people to. But I think this is the rub for leadership. I do, Conrad. I really do. I, I feel like this is, this is where we miss it. Because then we say, well, Alan, you're right. Here's the problem. In my seven-day week, I hadn't been with Jesus once. I hadn't spent time with the Lord. Alan, I I don't even know where to begin my lifestyle. I'm not the spiritual leader that I need to be for my kids. I'm not the spiritual leader I need to be for my wife. I'm not the, I'm not the helpmate I need to be for my husband. I can't lead because I'm not close with Jesus. And to have that thought would miss the entire point. Of Haggai, the message that Haggai brought was not positive. It was not "Hey boys, keep doing what you're doing." It was "Consider your ways. Stop what you're doing. About face and go the other direction. Repent. Get busy on the house of the Lord." But the leaders led the way in repentance. There is nothing. Men, I'm just speaking to you because I am one. Men, there is nothing keeping you from being the spiritual leader of your family except your pride. That's it. If you will repent, and listen, maybe that's repentance. Maybe you know that you have a relationship with Christ, but you haven't been the spiritual leader. Maybe that's repenting and and restoring fellowship, or maybe that's repenting for the very first time and becoming a child of God. I want you to know that if you will turn, God will abide, and you have the opportunity to lead. But it doesn't happen the other way around. We wait for God to give us this smorgasbord of all these gifts and talents, and now we're a mighty leader for the kingdom. It's not the way it works. It's God's presence that leads. In fact, if you led that way, it would be all about you anyway. God's called you to lead. And so in that lens, he's telling these people, Listen, you, you, you are, your God's presence has made you unique, Israel. And even though you can't see it, even though it doesn't exist like it used to, God is with you. Listen because this church don't get healthy doesn't get healthy until families get healthy. And families don't get healthy until we get healthy. So turn the leaders don't just lead the way in these powerful spiritual acts. The leaders lead the way in repentance. Zerubbabel and Joshua just led the way in repentance. They're like, dang, boys, we're wrong. Let's turn it around. Let's about face. Let's turn this ship around. And let's get going the direction that God would have us to go. Number three, the Lord revives. The leaders respond The Lord resides, and then finally the Lord revives. Haggai 1, verse 14, And the Lord stirred up in the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. What did he do? He stirred up. He stirred up. That is an exciting word. That is an amazing Text there that he began to work and to move. He began to do what only he could do. He began to revive the people. The morale, all of the, all of the, the difficulty, all of the stuff began to pale in comparison to what God was doing in the midst of his people. And the spirit of all the remnant of the people, and they came and they worked. On the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. God stirred. God moved. Now, if you've got lost friends, family members, I want you to understand, your job is to be obedient. It's God's job to stir. And here's the thing. We don't know when that's going to happen. So guess what we've got to keep doing? We've got to keep being obedient. We've got to keep keep putting ourselves in a place where we have the opportunity to lead, right? Because once the Lord resides in us, he begins to revive us. It's why if you believe once saved, always saved, as I do, you have to believe once saved, always changed. Because the Lord revives because it's what He does. What does it say in Revelations? He makes all things new. So He's making me new day after day after day. I'm being renewed. I'm being revived. The Lord is stirring. It's up to us to surrender. But it's up to God to stir. Every great revival in history... Began in one heart. Every revival in history. Every one of you trace it far enough and you'll find usually one sold out teenager. That's usually where it begins. It's actually absolutely historical fact that most most awakenings, at least the two that we've experienced in our country, have come through teenagers. Come through young people. Who's, they're just foolish enough to take God at his word, right? With all of our facts and how how my age has taught me that God can't, can only use me to make a limited difference. They just believe God. They just trust him. And we see incredible awakenings, revivals happening in our country. The story of a seminary professor, Dr. Orr. I was reminded of this story recently through social media of all things. Uh, I was reading a book for seminary studies one time and read of this story in 1940 of Dr. Edwin Orr who took a group of theology students from Wheaton College on a missionary trip to England. While there, he took a sightseeing day because that's what you do on a mission trip, right? The Lord can move for six days but on the seventh day, we don fanny packs and go, right? We take pictures, right? Nikon cameras are a go, right? That's just what we do. That's what every, every good evangelical does. We minister for six days, and then we sightsee for the rest, right? And so he took them to a museum that was the home of John Wesley, who was the father of the Methodist church, who God had used mightily in England. Mightily. Made a huge difference. In fact, the entire Methodist uh, denomination came from his teaching and from this revival that he began in England. They went into, the, into Wesley's kitchen where they saw where he prepared his meals and where he sat with his family. And they observed how he lived his life. They went to his study, which was super cool for a theology nerd and would be super cool for a theology nerd like me, Right? To, uh, see all of his systematic theologies and, and see how he, how he arranged everything and see how he studied and how he did the work of exegesis to get to where he needed to in scripture to communicate it to his people. In fact, there were still notes on the table where he had made all these scribbles of, of, of references and cross references and, and commentaries. He saw his whole house and then they went up to his bedroom. And in his bedroom, They looked and they saw at the end of his bed there were two indentions in the carpet worn out, just completely worn down where it was said that John Wesley before he started every day would pray for hours for God to use him to move in England. God do a work in me for hours John Wesley would pray about whatever it is that he needed to do that day. Whatever God needed to do, he'd sit there and he'd pray. And then, they left. They saw the place, and Dr. Orr took them out and took them back to the bus and did the head count, right? That all of us that are good chaperones know that we have to do. Sound off, one, two, three. That's how you know they're the ones that are really, you know, they've got tenure at this, they've assigned numbers already to people. Well, he realizes one of his students is missing. So he goes back in the museum and he starts looking, looks in the kitchen, looks in the living room, looks in the study where he thought he'd find him, being a theology student. He's not there. And then he gets to the bedroom, and before he even walks in the door, he can hear the young man's prayer. He walks in the room and he looks, and the young man is knelt down, and his knees are planted in the same spot that John Wesley's was. And he was praying... God, do it again. God, stir it up again. What was he doing? He was praying for revival. The professor laid his hand on the kid's shoulder and said, man, buddy, it's time to go. And they got up and they left. And Dr. Orr and Billy Graham joined the students on that bus. Every revival starts in one heart. The question is, have you taken the initiative to align yourself with God? Man, God's got great plans for you in His church. God wants to use you. The thing about a body part is you use them. Right? You use the body parts. Right? And so if you're part of the body of Christ, God wants to use you. He wants to mobilize you for His kingdom so the body of Christ is more effective and His glory is greater. It's what God desires for you if you'll respond in obedience. If you'll repent. Maybe leadership for you looks like just repenting today. Turning today and resolving to be the leader that God's called you to be. Maybe repentance for you looks like getting on your face before God, doing business with Him and getting right in your relationship with Him. I don't know what God wants to do with you in this time of invitation. All I know is I want to give you an opportunity to respond, okay? And so there's going to be counselors in this room. If you would, bow your head and close your eyes. Again, whether you're here or whether you're joining us remotely, there's counselors in this room, and we want to give you the opportunity to respond to Christ today. If you would, be so bold to pray, God... What do you want to stir in me? Would you just pray that right now? What do you want to stir in me? Then in response to that prayer, I want you to do whatever God has laid on your heart to do. Maybe you're here and maybe you need to receive Christ for the very first time. We've got counselors who'd love to talk to you. Maybe you need to join our church. Join arms with what we're doing here at North. Baptism, whatever. Listen, whatever. But he's given you what he wants to do in you. How he's stirring in you today. Don't let this moment slip by. Father God, we thank you for your direction. And your breath that you breathe in us. God, let us align ourselves with you. God, that we can set a tone for our friends, for our family, for the lost. God, you would use us in a powerful way. If you're here and you need to make a decision for Christ, the counselors are here in the room in the front. Would you just respond? Nobody's looking around. Everyone just in prayer. Responding however it is that God leads you to respond. Would you do that now? Father, we love you. God, let us not miss what you want to do in us. Let us consider our ways and let us respond to you. God, we love you and we praise you and we thank you for this time and this invitation. In your name we pray. Amen. If you're here and you need to respond, you still need to respond, or you're at home, that connect card is the way that you can do that. So through texting North Connect to three one nine nine six, you can be access. You can have access to that, or by uh, just open up that bulletin, communicate with us. If you need to make a decision today, don't leave without doing that.